Deep Faith Nine, Season Four. Greetings, friends. This is Will. Will Nicholas. And today we've got our special James Bond, Our Man Bashir episode, season four, episode number nine. Cisco, O'Brien, and Dax, Worf, and Kira are coming back from a tiresome conference. Suddenly, there is a power surge in the warp core of the runabout, and the ship has been sabotaged and explodes. Eddington is only barely able to beam them off, but the shock of the wave damages the transporters and their patterns are still in the system. Uh, Eddington is able to store them, but where? Meanwhile, Dr. Bashir plays secret agent Bashir, Julian Bashir, in the Hollow Suite. He is surprised by the arrival of Garrick and finally allows him to join in. Then suddenly a KGB agent, Anastasia Komononov, looks like Kira, while Bashir thinks it's an uninvited guest. Uh, the truth still become, soon becomes clear that five crew members have become an integral part of the hollow adventure. With the safeties off, Bashir has to do his best to keep everyone alive while Eddington and Rom try to solve the problem. This is, a, uh, I think, one of the most loved episodes of Deep Space Nine. And uh, when I was reading um, ahead for this one, uh, it, it states that they hoped that they would use this hollow deck spy genre again and again through the series. And at the end, Julian Bashir says Julian Bashir will return, but he never does. This is the only spy thriller that we get in there. Today, uh, I've, I've got with me um, my subject matter expert on fanfic and fandom, uh, Kaufman, Michelle Kaufman. Uh, joining me today um, for unpacking this. Welcome, Michelle. Hello. Thanks for having me, Will. Um, as just before we get mainly into this episode, I do have a, a Deep Faith Nine continuity correction. That's Ooh, good. I love that's those. happened. It's like the the writers of uh, uh, of my life have gotten together in the writing room and decide to change the angle and the arc of my character. And uh, I've uh, come to the realization that I'm non-binary. So, oh, anyone fantastic. out there? And so that slightly mirrors it because we've uh, had a change in the arc of uh, Julian Bashir coming into this third third season so um, I did a little bit of reading as well and this is the episode that a lot of fans came uh, came around to Bashir came to uh, on his side to like Bashir a lot more as a character uh, so I know he's had some significant um, uh, time previously in the season but this is the one that we get to focus on him and we get to um, we get to see a little bit more about this new um, this new arc that has happened. So, 
I think that's one of the things I love about what they've done with Deep Space Nine and Voyager, as opposed to what's happened previously, is that there hasn't really been a lot of latitude for characters to to grow and change. They've done a little bit of that with Data in Next Generation, but but really when you look at, say, Geordie LaForge, he was Geordie LaForge, the blind guy at the beginning, and he was Geordie LaForge, the blind guy at the end. We're not really getting a lot of character development through old episode or star trek everybody remains the same after 45 minutes whereas especially with julian Bashir, but also with uh tom paris our beloved uh pilot from voyager we, we're actually seeing these redemption arcs these these characters that have actually been potentially annoying or rough around the edges or or uh hegemonically problematic in the past um actually learning to become better people um, in the process, which I, I think resonates with me and, and from what you've said with you, that, that, that we're all on a, a journey of, of redemption, uh, a journey of, of, of trying to work out how we could be the best version of ourselves despite what society may have labelled us as. Yeah, um, I think um, Wesley Crusher had the same issues um, in Next Generation, so um, he his character was perceived to be a little bit annoying. And then, yeah, un, un, unfortunately, we don't all get uh, just to restart <laughs> uh, with a with a new season, but we can metaphorically. That's what I guess New Year's is good for to do the reflection of the old and bring in the new. So I just wanted to, I thought that was a good, good little segue into our uh, parody fanfic um, Absolutely. Uh, episode, which... And, and w- it's good that you mentioned fanfic because what we've got here is we're doing a, a fandom type theological podcast where we're actually talking about Star Trek, which we love, and Deep Space Nine, which we've been following. But we're watching an episode this time that's actually about our characters fanficking and being a part of a fandom of another epic, the Bond epic that 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 they're into, and and I I really love the interplay around this critique and affirmation of this fan fiction that actually occurs right through this episode with Garrick and Bashir as they actually explore what does it mean to to like a particular fantasy, to be engaged with a particular fandom, and what does it say about us as people um, 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 with the fans, uh, the fandoms that we choose? Yeah, um, a few things that I um, that it's great for fandom to be is that there was um, a, a lot of meaningful names um, that can be often um, shown, like Doctor Noah. Uh, wanted mm-hmm. to flood the world, flood the and world, have an ark. And this is uh, this is the trope of the holodeck um, malfunction, or the tele- uh, more mm. the teleporter. We just have the um, the holodeck as the um, the vessel. Uh, but Deep Space Nine, the writers actually wanted to avoid. A major holodeck episode, um, malfunction episode because um, at the time, deep, um, 
Next Generation had done that a few times. To death. Um, yep. And it, it became a trope. And a trope which it, uh, the meaning is a significant or um, reoccurring theme uh, is everywhere. It's not just mm. in uh, sci-fi. It's in storytelling, all storytelling. Yep. And so... There's when we talk about certain themes, we, uh, we you can uh, talk about tropes, you know, use the word interchangeably almost. So, uh, there are tropes in yep. the Bible in the stories that they tell, um, Absolutely. and it's just a matter of whether you notice it or not. So, um, and and it's interesting, like, you know, in terms of uh, Star Trek is based on this idea that the episode is about um, um, our, our, our beloved crew or family encounters a particular crisis, the crisis threatens to overwhelm them and becomes dangerous or traumatic, um, then out of their skill or insight or relationships, they manage to find a way to resolve that um, and at the end, something has been learnt from our resolution and roll credits. So that's 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 kind of the standard framework for a Star Trek episode. And one of the best tropes, like the tech, techno fail trope um, that exists, uh, and the two big ones of that are the transport accident um, and the holodeck malfunction. And uh, look what they've done in this episode is they've combined the two together. So we've got no safeties on the holodeck so we get garrick bleeding from the mouth at one stage and so we know that it's now dangerous um and we've got the transporter malfunction so um what what a great way to mash up two two tropes together yeah and i think we i think we've had we've established the two tropes separately but this um i don't want to say it's the very first time but i i feel like it was a very new thing to do them both at the same time, especially incorporate the consequences of one into the other, because why would you have your senior uh, a senior officer stay in the holodeck? What we need we need this to play out because of um, story reasons. So it was a very clever um, mashup. Or, or, and even just exploring technology that's theoretical, you know, like theoretically we can teleport and theoretically we can have holograms. I mean, at the time we were obviously, you know, getting getting there in terms of real life, but what what could happen? It, the fanfic of what would happen with a teleport, <laughs> and that's what that's what a lot of fanfic is. What if? What if canon didn't happen exactly the same way? What if a character made a mis- um, a different decision? What if instead they were a different gen- uh, gender? What if they had a different job? <laughs> you know, like, so what if they owned a coffee shop? What if these spies uh, had to get a coffee shop? What if the coffee shop owners were spies? Like, <laughs> or Basically, you just start with a what if, and then you can explore. So, and with all those what ifs, um, we had better actually put ourselves back onto the sacred timeline and move back towards uh, Deep Space Nine. But um, that what if question has really been asked really, really well in the Marvel universe with the series What If, yeah, um, and and they've, and in the new um, uh, Doctor Strange movie, um, where they actually are able to 
crossover into different realities and so we see very different versions of some of our favorite superheroes doing different things because reality treated them differently yeah so this one this um i've i've so for the listeners at home i wrote down as the episode was happening notes and then i used a um a site called tv tropes um it does movie tropes as well but it basically has names for all the tropes which i'll give um and they almost mirrored each other so i would like to put my you know i am the uh, expert <laughs> type of hat on. You, you, you are you are cleverer than you <laughs> yeah. give yourself credit um, for. And I have to say, I, I, it's part of the reason why I have you on yeah. here as as my expert in fandom and fanfic tropes. Um, so uh, this episode had a lot of. I had written down um, obviously the James Bond um, theme, uh, but also Men from Uncle vibes uh, is the the note that I got. Um, the TV show from. Um, from the Cold War era, it was just I've I'm, I've been fascinated about that kind of war of nerves, tension, and that was part of the um, part of the episode. I feel like not just the spy aspect, but the that um, war on nerves and playing um, playing underground and having to do things um, subversely, and also um, while we're talking James Bond, I wrote down that the music had a very Goldfinger vibe, like I ended up humming <laughs> Goldfinger even though it wasn't quite exactly the same, um, and the Goldfinger release was 1964, which is the year they're in, in the holodeck. So which Bond was Goldfinger? Um, uh, Sean Connery. That's a good question. Sean Connery. Yep. <laughs> Sean Connery. So um, I thought uh, I thought of Philip Menzies as soon as I was like, oh, those notes. So <laughs> yeah, um, listen. Yeah, and they did a really good job of incorporating the scores from that those Cold War era films. Bond probably the most dominant yep. of those, but there's a whole bunch of them. Um, as in a fascinating period of time, sort of post um, Second World War, right up to nineteen ninety six. Um, we kind of it's been interesting seeing how Bond has had to shift post nineteen ninety six with the fall of superpowers. Yeah. Um, but even more interesting now, looking at current events and saying actually we we seem to be sliding back into a more Cold War feel with Agent Penny Wong heading off to the Pacific to actually. Um, and intercept and encounter the uh, the foreign minister from China and um, situations tense between Russia and Finland and Norway. So a lot of those Cold War feelings that I experienced in my uh, teens and 20s actually sort of coming back again um, in, in current events today, which is fascinating to think about. It's definitely, um, and I think I, I think from the fandom point of view, they did well without, uh, with making it so that it was this is James Bond without copyright issues. So they mm. definitely got a cease and desist, as in please don't do that again. But in the laws of parody, that they did quite well to um, mm. to not name Bond and therefore. Um, they were able to do a quite artful parody of the genre. So, yeah. I think the closest line they walked to was Bashir, Julian Bashir, which has become a meme um, itself, to a trope itself, absolutely. to be honest. So, um, 
Yeah, so I've just said the word genre, so I've got some notes on that uh, as well, and then we can get into a bit because it this does lead us back into the episode. So there are two uh, main characters that we're going to talk about, the dynamic between Bashir and Garrick, who we've mm-hmm. talked about um, before, and Garrick is in uh, the wrong genre, He's a, mm. like he's a spy. He's a real world mm-hmm. spy. He's he's the real deal. He's done it. Um, collected the you know collected the key, <laughs> the key ring for it. Uh, got the t shirt, and so he keeps saying to um, to Bashir, "This isn't how we do it. This isn't what happens." Whereas Bashir, he knows that it's not real. But he's genre savvy in the way that he knows how this James Bond spy thing works. He knows, Mm. like, I'm sure he realises that this is not how a real spy would operate. This is just a fiction. But he knows the genre. So he knows that there's going to be um, uh, guns Mm. hidden everywhere. And he knows that in order to... uh, escape the ropes he has to seduce the girl so it's kind of like you've got the two of them both correct but yeah in the position that they're in uh julian does have the um upper hand on them i think so it's it's because he's actually got an understanding of the cultural narrative that he's immersed in and i actually think there's some really interesting stuff to talk about there in terms of cultural narratives um, and and what happens to us when we find ourselves immersed in a narrative that's that's different to our expectations um, and that that particularly has a lot of references when we're talking about neurodiversity because often people who actually um, have a have a diverse uh, neuro makeup will actually find that they're constantly out of step with the with the cultural narrative they're immersed in um, and so having to be able having to appearing to be less capable in some ways because they're having to play catch up because the narrative isn't responding the way they expect them to. And and certainly we see that with Garrick is that, that he has expectations about how the narrative should play out in reality and they're different to the way that this narrative is going to play out because he's immersed in a narrative that's different to the one that he understands, which mm. I found fascinating. Yeah, and so for a real-world example, I have auditory processing disorder where sometimes mm. I the sounds just don't process either correctly or uh, quick enough for, um, for my brain. And so instead of explaining that to everyone, I wear a badge at work that says I'm just hard of hearing so that if I have to repeat mm-hmm. or get them to repeat themselves. So that's a way of masking because I don't want a five-minute conversation explaining every time what auditory yep. processing is. Um, <clears throat> I, I will just say, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. <laughs> so that is another way of masking and um, having to downplay or like you said um uh be a little bit like lesser i think you said um Mm. in terms of interacting with the world so well you're you're assuming a narrative role the culture will understand um and so so you know in a way that 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 gives you and that's what masking is really about Mm. really is assuming a role 
um, um, that that isn't true or correct, that may actually even be a, a, a something of a fantasy, that actually um, will allow the culture to move on and accept where where we are, uh, and 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 certainly there. I think there are real consequences for for the long term of that. That that it actually makes it hard for people to feel that they're true to their own identity if they're having to mask all the time. Mm. And it can be quite difficult too. And I I think we've talked about this, so we, we I won't spend too much longer on this. Um, yeah. So at the beginning, we have um, Bashir absolutely immersed in this fantasy of being being the hero taking out the good guy getting the girl um, kissing the girl and so we ha- and then something unexpected happens Garrick pops in <laughs> and um I from so from a fandom point of view um why is why is Garrick interested in what Bashir's doing like um and then we find, uh, so from like a spy reason. So when Garrick um, first, uh, they first meet um, back in episode one, uh, some fandom theories is that Garrick assessed all of the senior staff coming in and going, this is my way in to mm-hmm. the senior staff to know what's going on because I can be friends this guy um, who might be the weak, uh, the weak link in terms yeah. of um, in terms of information, and so it's like for spy reasons, Garrett keeps a tab on um, Bashir's free time, and suddenly Bashir is in the holodeck way more than he normally is um and then other reasons he just might want to be friends like we we realize we um sorry we find out that everyone else has left the um left for a conference so maybe he was just spending time in there because all the rest of the senior staff is gone except for Odo and I don't think those two are very yep. very close at this point in time anyway so well we, we have had Odo the interrogation scene between Odo and Garrick which you and I covered yep. last season so so they've certainly have a difficult relationship in relation yeah to I was that. talking more about Bashir very... and Odo so that's why Bashir yeah, yeah. would more be in like oh I've got all this free time to to yeah, holodeck yeah. like no one's yeah, certainly Bashir yeah. and Odo don't have any relationship yeah. either. Um, yeah, so so um, I mean, I, I don't think Bashir needs an excuse no. to go off and actually engage in leisure. Um, he certainly has has shown himself to be a person who enjoys leisure um, and um, engages in creativity yeah. and fantasy um, previously. So, I think Garrick's more um, just, it was more than normal. Like it wasn't just mm. like once or twice, like his normal level of yep. I'm reading a book or I'm going, it was like, oh, what? So for me, yep. that seemed to be like, oh, well, he hasn't got a, go- um, Bashir hasn't got a gossip session with Dax or isn't playing with yeah, O'Brien yeah. in um, racquetball well, and stuff like that. Similar situation where I get a brand new game, computer yep. game or something. And so I'll, I'll uh, schedule several days without meetings and I'll play the game all the way through in the first 36 hours that I've got it. So there is something novel um, about, about a new, a new, and, and the holodeck really strikes me as this 
really interesting and exciting hybrid between an, a, a book that we might read and a computer game that we would be immersed in. Um, I, I can't wait to get a holodeck. I, I'm I'm so looking forward to it. Well, we've kind of we're getting there with the VR systems that are out. Um, mm. I've got one that. Uh, it attaches to my PlayStation, but that you can get ones that you just put your phone so you're completely cordless, uh, which is getting yep. there. And then I think there are rooms around the world that you can go into, um, obviously not as expansive uh, yet, but certainly yep. we're, we're, we're getting towards it. So, yeah, definitely. I, um, I personally am, a, uh, I'm going to say I've taken days off work <laughs> to uh, for new game releases. So I'm right there with yep. you. And the area of augmented reality also provides us with that. So games like Pokemon Go and um, what's the alien invasion one? I can't remember what it's called now, um, where the, you've, you've got um, Ingress. Ingress is, is another one that's similar. So there are, there are these overlays to our geographical world where if you use your phone, you'll discover uh, places and things to interact with. There's a Harry Potter one that's just come out a little while ago as well. So, so that you're actually engaging in, in, in uh, augmented fantasy in the, in a real world setting. Um, so, so those are kind of the, the precursors to the, to the, um, to the holodeck. Um, but uh, I think we've got, we've still got a long way to go before we're, Using replicated matter to be able to um, fire a um, a cork from a champagne bottle to take out um, the falcon as he walks menacingly towards us. Which they didn't teach Garrick in the Obsidian Order. <laughs> no, no, no. That was uh, definitely yeah. not not one of the skills they gave him. And going into um, the personalities too, the exchange where it's um, it's Garrick mentions it's unusual for you not to tell me or to tell people mm. that like it's all hush hush it's not just that you're spending mm. time in the holodeck with this new stuff it's that you haven't told anyone about it and then Bashir's reply of um, I must have learned that from you it just really shows mm. that um, how their uh, relationship their friendship has developed that they're so used to each other that Bashir mm. knows that Garrick's the secretive one, and um, Garrick knows that Bashir's open, like uh, an open book. Yep. So to get that exchange at the beginning sets us up for um, some poignant um, conversations right. that happen throughout. And Garrick really reveals something or more of himself than he normally does by actually showing this interest in Bashir, whilst Bashir is actually keeping more to himself. So it's a really fascinating dynamic you've picked up there between the two of them um and so they're they're actually um i mean i love this idea too that the garrick's picked um bashir because of his vulnerability but he becomes an asset like um and so during these first four seasons we've now had numerous occasions where garrick and bashir have been a cold war style back channel um, um and and remembering that that you know, we're at the peak of this Cold War kind of era while this is being released. Um, you know, this is at the time where th the, the Cold War is actually at its most intense um, and about to come to an end um, in a lot of ways when when this first aired. So so it's it's fascinating that they're continuing the Cold War trope in, in Deep Space Nine 
as well as playing with the fantasy of this trope with the characters um, inside the story. So there's there's some really interesting meta-narrative yeah. going on. I, I really like Star Trek because we get the time travel aspect, whether it is literal time travel or um, going back into a holodeck simulation uh, back in time. Mm. They can go forward and see this is what our future should look like or they can go back um, so they can go back in time to dates that we haven't experienced yet, but they can set things where they like. And I think that's why 1964, as much as they lined it up with the Goldfinger movie, that really does set the, because that's in our minds, um, in well, in our generation's mind, that's when the Cold War happened, the 60s and the 70s. That's when we think of the man from Uncle, the, um, the bulk of the James Bonds, um, the spy stuff. Whereas... Yeah, like I was alive during, (laughs) you know, during the 90s. So I was alive during Mm. the Cold War. And sometimes you just don't think of it like that, you know, that these major historical events. So sending it back further can actually just relieve your mind of thinking, oh, yeah, so we didn't need to set it in the – if we set it in the 90s, no one would believe us, whereas (laughs) – or it would take them a moment and then take them out of the story, therefore. um, So sending it back in 1964 um, helps us absorb the narrative just as much. So, um, yeah, I I really like the cult war like one of my favorite shows and i actually have a tattoo is um captain scarlet and the mistrons um and that's a cold uh it's never said that it's a cold war era representation but it is a hundred percent an analogy for the cold war two superpowers uh they don't fight uh wars directly it's all intelligence and little missions Mm. and stuff like that and it's just one of my favorite favorite shows so Intelligence has changed a lot too. Um, you know, the, the James Bond is, is 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 now no longer as an essential asset as as once was. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were saying that there are there are far more um, artificial assets or or technological assets these days. Like you, you don't need to slip a bug in behind the frame of a of a of a picture um, in the motel room anymore. All you need to do is actually get access to someone's mobile phone and you can listen to everything that's happening in that room. Um, you don't need to put a, a tracker chip on someone. You can just follow them with their mobile phone or their iPad. Or So so there's a there's a, been a real shift in the way that technology has affected the intelligence business as well, which has made it so much more difficult for, um, I guess, human assets to, um, to, to be as essential as they once were. Um, and we see that shift in James Bond as well. When we're looking at Sean mm. Connery, he's out there doing his spy stuff. But when we look at the latest um, David Craig movies, Q is just as an important character as Absolutely. James Bond because he's the one behind the computer searching the phones, uh, looking up the cameras, um, getting into databases and stuff like that. So I think even though it was in the 90s, we do see some of that from Garrick. I think his spy work Mm. is is a mixture in in that kind of 90s framework of he does have spy programs 
doing work for him, yep. but he also does appreciate the conversation, like the 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 leg yep. work or the wet work of mm. of being a, a spy. Absolutely. So we get a good we get a good mixture there. And going back to the genres, um, where and then we have this poignant moment where um, they find out that. Um, the holodeck safety is off and so they have to play this out and it's a spy genre and spies get shot and spies get Mm -hmm. impacted but they have to play this out and so um we get the moment in the cave when it's just the two of them they don't have to pretend Mm -hmm. for anyone um any of the characters uh garrick wants to call like garrick wants to call it he just wants to cut his losses and get out alive. Me, yep. um, I want to survive. If I, I have to go. Like I have to go. Mm. We, we could die, basically, especially with mm. this type of stuff. I know I'm a spy. I have experience. This is how I've survived this long, and that is not invalid. That is completely valid. He's had the experience mm. of being a spy, and. I think I saw somewhere that it said that Bashir was a little bit um, not out of character, but he was a um, he's a doctor and he's not supposed to do harm, yet he shoots, shoots. and injures Garrick. But it, if you think of it from the Spock trope of the um, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the mm. few, that even if Gar- um, Bashir had missed and killed Garrick. Mm-hmm. There were still five people's lives at stake. That's right for one life. So I th- and there's some. Yep, sorry. Yeah, there's some fascinating dynamics happening there. So it's this shot that grazes Garrick in the neck that actually that's his counter argument, and it changes Garrick's perspective. He moves from saying "Let's go." He still had the capacity yep. to call for the arch to leave. But he actually went. No, there's something, there's something different here. I'm seeing about Bashir. He he has acted out of character, yes. and and there's an enigma there where he says, you know, what if you had have killed me? And Bashir says, well, you know, how do you, how do you know that I, I I didn't? Now, looking backwards, yes, you and I both know that he, if he wanted to kill Garrick, he would yes. have because he's he's augmented. Um, he would not have missed a shot like that. Um, he aimed exactly and fact, he quite, where he wanted it. That's where he wanted to go. Yep. So he makes the point that he's serious about yes. his victory conditions here, that that the victory condition is that nobody dies um, and that it won't be a victory unless he gets everyone out. And he then, by by making that point so intently to Garrick, he shifts Garrick's victory conditions also. He, he gets um, so the res- he aligns. He gets him. the respect of Garrick mm. by doing one doing something Garrick doesn't expect from him, but two doing something that Garrick might also do himself. Like yep. maybe not the missing part, but um, but yeah. Also, from this point onwards, Garrick can't accuse Bashir of not taking this yes. seriously. Yeah. Um, and so that was his main argument, and his main argument goes out the window the moment he fires that shot. Clearly, Bashir is taking this deadly seriously. Yeah. Um, and 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 so so that actually um, realigns Garrick. I think 
um, to uh, to see where this goes. Let's. He, he then goes. Okay. Well, let's let's yeah. see how this comes out. Um, which is fantastic. And we do get a little bit of um, like quips between the two, but I think Garrick takes the narrative more seriously as well. So it's mm. um, so, and takes Bashir's role in the narrative. So it's mm. he stops going. This is a spy thing. That's my thing. Um, I'm the spy. I'm the one from the Obsidian Order. I know how this works. And from that moment, he stops and goes, "This is Bashir's world. This is Bashir's um, Bashir's in control. So I will follow Bashir's lead." So um, there's that switch there of respect, but also of uh, yeah, Bashir is now in charge of the situation, and Garrick is just going to do um, do what Bashir. Uh, from a from a biblical theological perspective, I really want to pick up on that in terms of the way we approach the text of the Bible. And you mentioned before, you know, that the Bible is not immune to tropes and genres and 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 these kind of narratives. And and so often what we've and what we do and what we've done as Christian community is that we'll actually hijack the narrative in the Bible so that it actually suits our power structures today. Um, so we'll talk about complementarianism, the roles of men and women, um, and we'll actually pick those narratives that that suit that for us, and we'll accentuate them so that that actually will mean that we can we can um, maintain authority in established cultural norms but we'll actually then overlook other narratives like for example to take the complementarianism and the position of men and women we'll overlook the story of of Lydia uh, who sold purple cloth who becomes the apostle who becomes in charge of the church at Philippi one of the churches that's written to in the epistles um, and written to most positively in the in epistles when you compare it to Galatians or Corinthians or or Ephesians. So there's a sense in which, you know, where where it is much danger of 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 um, of taking Garrick's position of trying to say, hey, I know better how this narrative works, and using it for our own power position. What we need sometimes is a shot in the neck to actually get us to go, hey, actually. I need to actually think about this differently and I need to, to to ask myself the question, what happens if I stand in this different position and assess the narrative from over there? And and that's a real hermeneutic skill, I think, that, that people need to pick up um, when they're reading, the, reading any narrative, mm. but especially the Bible with its power. And we've touched on it a few times with this show being in the 90s. Um, the Bible is set. <laughs> you know, set two thousand years plus years ago. That's the New Testament, yeah. yeah. And then, and so thousands more before that. Two thousand years of culture has also changed. Mm. So when we, um, when we have Jesus as this passive um, prophet, it's like no, he was very, very active in terms of um, uh, a. Pa- uh, 
not passive, like passive aggression, I guess. But he was like mm-hmm. active in that kind of almost youthful terrorism, yep. like um, towards the Romans. Where, um, yep. so the one that I know is the uh, turn the other cheek, and we take that as yep. oh, just forgive them, and you know, if someone um, someone does you wrong, it's like well, actually, mm-hmm. no. Culturally, if you slap someone, it's going to be with the back of your hand. So when they've slapped you over the cheek you they're now presenting the um the flat of their hands the palm Mm -hmm. and so if you turn the other cheek to allow them to hit them it's actually a sign that if they do they're bringing you to their level of respect so that's (laughs) that's culturally um, and so there are those cultural nuances yeah. and narratives that we miss because we're not a part of that system. Yeah, so uh, it's so really this good. is similar as well, where Garrick's missing the point almost of this. The yeah, point yeah. is that it's a fantasy. The point is that yeah. it's not real in the sense that it's not the Obsidian Order. It's um, it's this book. It's this video game that is stylized to a point that we can get um, Bashir can take someone out with a cork, you know? And so um, once once we've gotten those kind of tropes, and yeah, I think that's why it does help that um, helps Bashir's character, and this is why it's, he's become likable is because he can now take things seriously. He's not the annoying mm. person. He's not the um, indecisive puppy chasing after the girls. Um, he can make the hard decision, and I think we've got some depth to the character. Yeah, yeah. and so. Um, one of the other things is that uh, my one of my favourite things of the episode is that Garrett gives this speech about we need to walk away. Like we, we need to mm-hmm. know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away and know when. Wait, wait, that's a country and western song, I think, isn't yeah, it? That's, yeah, um... by Garrick. <laughs> because... <laughs> Garrick wrote it, didn't you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so basically, um, it challenges uh, in the die of the die's cast, the one that we did last season. Mm. Um, Garrick saw the battle was lost, and so he fled with Odo back to Deep Space mm-hmm. Nine. So for yep. that, that was a callback to that episode. But then the next callback we get is Bashir parroting. Um, giving the same speech this, um, yeah. Garrick's same speech which one proves that he listens um, and yeah. takes his friend's words on board but two it's the reverse of what happens in the Dyer's cast because Bashir gives Garrick a speech and Garrick parrots it on the bridge of the um, the ship that's blown <laughs> that's about to oh, blow yeah, up yeah. and so that's a mirror of the relationship that they're both yeah, taking yeah. things on board and learning from each other um and i just love it i love it so much i love when this type of relationship I, is um i think what i love most about that scene too with bashir um using garrick's words at the end is that that you can see that what's happened is that um, Garrick's, uh, sorry, Bashir's done what, what I love to do, especially when I'm playing games, but also in life, is that he's reframed the victory conditions. 
So he's actually said that the, the cultural narrative says that he should prevent Dr. Noah from flooding the world and doing the damage, and that's when the credits should roll afterwards. Yes. But in this particular case, he reframes the victory condition so that Dr. Noah wins, totally surprising everybody, buying time for Rom. We'll get on yes. to Rom in a little bit because there's another interesting thing happening outside the holodeck yep. as much as inside. But... but um, um, gives them enough time to be able to beam them all out so that everyone gets to survive. Um, so the victory conditions have changed. He's no longer playing to the cultural narrative of the immersive fantasy, but is actually playing the real world narrative, which means that losing inside the holodeck no longer matters. Um, it's winning outside the holodeck yes. that actually really matters. And so the bigger the bigger picture takes over. And I, I just... I love that reframe. It's a fantastic reframe. Um, and then moving on to um, to Rom and to Quark and to our security officer mm. um, trying to get everyone's holiday back. Um, it was as much. So just to give a little bit of credit to to Quark before we move straight onto one, Quark was the one to mention that uh, the ship. So the, the station everywhere else. was everywhere. <laughs> like for him, it was yeah. just, yeah, that's obviously <laughs> like, um, cause that, I, I, I don't know if that's how his mind would work. Like this is where else would you, where else would you put it everywhere else? So well, clearly something had gone wrong with the whole of the rest of the station. Yeah, so maybe um, so investigate that up. as well. Yeah. So, and then mm. we have Rom who's had to literally MacGyver, <laughs> um, the holodeck together because, you know, Quark is a, a Ferengi cheapskate um, who won't give him anything. And so they have to, uh, you know, try to get the connection, like the USB-A to the USB-C of the Defiant, yeah. yep. you know, through through things. So, and, and we've had glimpses of Rom and his engineering genius yes. um, throughout the, the seasons. But really... Only glimpses. They kind of, you know, something happens. Rom says, oh, "I just did this. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I, you know, uh, pieces of a, uh, a gun are missing, um, a pistol are missing." So he goes, "Oh, yes, I had to use them to do this." And so we've got this it, it, it growing image, uh, and it's another redemption arc where everybody assumes that that Quark's brother Rom is is an idiot, um, and and he plays that role. He masks that role really well because it's the narrative that is expected of yeah. him, and there are less complications if he just if he doesn't have to do all the explaining, like you yes. were saying. If everybody just goes, "Oh, look, that's just Rom," but all of a sudden we get this massive surprise in this episode, and he continues to surprise us into the future when we discover that that he's the, the one who's able to, as you say, MacGyver, he can cobble together parts. He's got skills that rival Scotty and, and Chief O'Brien and, um, and, and, um, uh, and um, the other greats. Geordie uh, LaForge. Geordie <laughs> LaForge. Um, and I know the one I was trying to think of was, um, was the guy from Enterprise. Um, Ah, but I've forgotten his name as well. Yeah, I'll have to comment. Um, but leave right. it in the comments, everyone. Yes, yes. Anybody, anybody who picks that up, please put it in the comments. Um, and um, um, but these engineers have actually been, you Fully know, trained. Um, uh, uh, that's right. And and we're taught to see them as 
as experts and special, yeah. but suddenly we actually see this genius in a place we don't expect. And I, I think I, 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 I really love the ROM arc. Yes. I think, I think um, there's a, there's a lot to be talked about in terms of especially neurodiversities like, like autism. I know a lot of my friends who are on the autism spectrum actually really relate to Rom as a character. And I think we actually um, did mention this back in season two with um, when Quark was getting um, attacked in the, in the chemist shop and uh, yep, um, yep. Uh, Odo investigates Rom and he's like, I'm not as stupid as you like i am or i am as stupid yeah. and we yeah. did mention that um he for a ferengi he doesn't fit the ferengi neurotypical he doesn't have you the, know no, all he the, hasn't got the lobes he, he doesn't, doesn't have the lobes. the lobes he doesn't have the uh the basis of the ferengi culture and so for mm. a ferengi He's neuro like pretty much neurodivergent, so that's where we get this. Yep. Well, for us, he's an amazing engineer, and that's amazing. But for Ferengi, they don't value those skills, and so that's where we. And we're only just learning those skills too. Um, and we get yeah. we get this. I, I I was blown away a few episodes ago. We get this interaction between Cisco and Nog, where Nog declares. I, I have the same deficiencies in terms of profit as my father, and I'm I'm not going to make it in Ferengi society. So I want to join Starfleet. Yeah. Um, I, I, I if I stay on my trajectory, then no one will ever respect me. I need to choose a different trajectory if I'm actually going to be able to uh, to to be anything. Um, and and so like Nog's worked this out, um, but he hasn't worked out that his father is also going to take the same journey and and i almost feel like there's a liberation for nog yeah uh, sorry liberation for rom because nog is actually saying no i won't stick with the cultural norms i'm going to head in a different direction and so rom begins to say well do i have to or can i do something different and that's well? bringing in uh culture and so a lot of um autism a lot of neurodivergencies a lot of um, queer culture comes from gathering around you fellowship of like minds mm. not just to be an echo chamber but to discover that someone else is living like that like I was I thought yep. I was a cis woman right up until last year and then I started you know meeting and interacting with what it meant like with people what it meant to be non-binary or agendered or to live outside of the gender norms in themselves and I was like that's me and there's younger people who have come up with this who um it's normal every day yes there's still some hardships but it's normal everyday stuff to them and so it can be liberating to the generation above who had to hide who had to um do things that they weren't comfortable with because otherwise there'd be yep. even more prosecution. So I think with Nog and Rom, Nog realising this from his father, because he's seen what the father's done, has gone, I'm going to break out of that mould. And then because mm. someone has broken out of that mould, Rom can then retrospectively go, wait, I, I see myself in that so if they can do it, I yep. can do it too. 
And that leads me to a really fascinating part that I wanted to. We're going to run very close to time on today's episode because there's just so much to talk about, and um, and maybe we'll need to do a special um, on this Page, kind of Patreon stuff only, sometime in the maybe? future. Organize, maybe, yeah, and organize a panel or something, which would be really good to do. But um, as as I was as I was thinking about these cultural norms, and as I was doing my notes earlier, I realized that 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 what Nog and Rom are doing, um, what we're seeing from um, from Bashir and Garrick is that they're breaking out of their scripting. They've been written by the cultural norms of the day to to be to be bound by a particular script. And in the meta narrative of this this story, there's something else going on. Um, that um, Nana Visitor is not an angry major. In fact, in some ways, when I've heard her speak, and even recent times, she was miscast in the role of Major Kira. She's a she's a, a social butterfly who's um, f- very sensual and very engaged, and and so this episode gives her an opportunity to play a completely different scripted role, um, where she's playing the Russian spy and she's vivacious and and connected and and she's she's all over Julian and and she's ignoring personal space, so she gets to play something very different. Likewise, Avery Brooks is is some of his best roles outside of Deep Space Nine have been as the the crazy loose cannon who no one knows what they're really going to do. And so we get to see Avery Brooks go completely off script here, away from Cisco. Um, we get to see the the dishonorable gruff uh, henchman come out of Colmeny. By the way, happy birthday, Colmeny! It's uh, your yours your birthday yesterday. Um, uh, when we recorded this, uh, the thirtieth of uh, May. Um, um, so you know, like uh, looking, uh, wanted to do a big shout out there. But Colmeny gets to play not the man of integrity, the family man, the the engineer that we know, but but this henchman. So each of them um gets to play. Even Michael Dawn gets to play a role which is very different to the one that the script normally tells them they have to do. It gives them an opportunity to bust out and be themselves for a bit. And I think there's something there's something really beautiful in that, that that um we we and transformative in that that we can learn from in this as well is that um sometimes it's important for us to assess the scripts we've been handed by so-called normal society and actually ask, does this does this really fit? Or um, and that's why I think you and I both love role playing because it allows us to throw off our scripts sometimes and say, oh, I'm going to play a character that's completely different um, to me um, and do something something right out there. So um, I, I, I love that there was that kind of layer of meta narrative in there in relation to that scripting that we were talking about before. And that's what's great about um, the tropes as well is because the trope of Deep Space Nine is science fiction monster of the week um and um storylines whereas this one was um everyone got everyone was different everyone was playing a different Mm. character so um it was a little bit monster of the week in the sense that it was all over in um the 45 minutes but yeah that we got to see everyone kind of have fun with the role. There was a few a few um, behind-the-scenes interviews where they were all saying that this was one of their favourite acting roles um, in, yeah, in terms yeah, of absolutely. the series. So, 
I think the mirror universe gives us that opportunity as well, mm. where they get to play around with an alternate reality version of themselves. Um, and that's, that's, that, that's that what if stuff we were talking about before. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so what else have you got? I mean, that's, that's almost it. Um, the one thing I did want to mention, and I forgot to look it up a bit earlier, is that Garrick has this fascination with fantasy in the sense that he it's almost like he doesn't know what that like not that he doesn't know what it means theoretically but almost like he hasn't indulged in it himself like I'm I got the feeling um that the stuff that we have seen from Garrick the books and the plays that he's recommended to Julian are all based very heavily in reality so they're almost like they might not be real but this is a real thing that the Cardassians do and this is a real thing that um, happens in Cardassia whereas Julian's fantasy is completely different like he's a spy mm. running around killing people and he's a doctor in real life who wouldn't harm you know well wouldn't harm a fly until the Cardassian gets in the way but it's it's almost like and by the end of it Garrick's like maybe I should do this more often so and we've had that debate between, um, or, or sorry, literary review between um, Garrick and Bashir when they were talking about the the novel, the Never Ending Sacrifice, yes. an epic tale spanning seven generations of history of a Cardassian family, which displays selfless obedience to Cardassia. Like there, there's something. It's there, almost propaganda, not not, deal. Fla- not fantasy. Yeah. yeah. There's very little little room for imagination in the harsh Cardassian Union. Um, the 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 Cardassians, you know, a race which I I, I love dearly, um, not um, <laughs> uh, don't don't seem to actually have have the time for uh, for imaginings and fantasy. And it's it's fascinating to see how they've affected the Bajorans because just recently I watched the episode called Rascals. Um, which is when um, uh, Ensign Rowe, Captain Picard, um, Guinan and um, Keiko O'Brien, actually, all um, in a transporter accident, end up um, as small children and they have to yeah. work out how to change them back. Um, and in, there's an exchange in that one where where Guinan says to Ensign Rowe, who's a Bajoran, yeah. um, didn't you do make-believe? Didn't you play games when you were a kid? And she said, no, I evaded Cardassian patrols and tried yep. to stay alive. I imagined that my my oppressors were dead. That's what I did with my imagination when I was a kid. Um, and so there's something about this this really harsh conflict that's actually occurred between the Cardassians mm. and the Bajorans that's actually sucked the creativity and fantasy and imagination out of both And I cultures. think from Cardassian point of view, you don't want people to be creative when you're trying to get them to blindly follow. Like you, yep. if they get creative, they might realise that something's not right or we could do this differently and then that causes trouble for the power structure. So... Has it ever occurred to you that, that Garrick's cover on Deep Space Nine as a tailor is a tad ridiculous for a Cardassian. I mean, have you seen Cardassian fashion? Have you considered I mean, that it's that's all the point? <laughs> because like, when you're considered lesser, 
people don't regard you. Like, do you know how much a janitor? Yeah, yeah. Um, it becomes invisible. It, yeah, do you, mm. like a janitor position, you can just wander into anywhere and they'll just completely ignore you. So, but it's, yeah, a a Cardassian tailor is like a Klingon counselor or a, yeah, um, a, a, a Betazoid security officer. You know, like you, you just kind of go these. This, these tropes are a mismatch yes. um, uh, of, of, of stereotypical expectation. And yet when I'm reading some of the best characters I've loved in novels is the, the, the drow ranger, mm. you know, drows can't be rangers. Uh, you know, when you actually get the, the, the gnomish paladin, um, some of these mismatches yeah. and tropes can actually make for the most interesting of characters well, when, when well, we're my um, next, reading stories or In my next role-playing game, whenever that happens, I've uh, already got the idea for the most reluctant paladin who it just doesn't want to be there, but they accidentally made an oath in front of a god, and that was good enough for the god, and they they just want to go home. So that's not what yeah, you yeah. want from a paladin riding in to save your city. <laughs> no, but it's the, the subversion. The, the accidental hero. The subversion of tropes is um, can mm. be just as fun as the, the tropes themselves. So um, I have no reason to doubt that Garrick's uh, position wasn't intentional. I think he knew exactly what he was doing by demeaning mm. himself by... Cardassian culture which is almost the opposite of Rom's masking where he's trying to fit mm. into Ferengi culture whereas um, Garrick already has the release of he's never like he's the outcast he's never going back so he's going mm. well how how much worse can I get and how much information can I get to stay relevant so yeah and certainly a tailor does make him invisible and inconspicuous enough to be plain, simple, Gary. Like, have you uh, Mia have you watched movies where the mob bosses are getting tailored suits and they're just talking to mm. their henchmen who are sitting down, and the tailor's there with the pins and with the tape measure? And not only have I watched movies, I've watched Cisco summon Garrick to actually give him a measurement, um, so that he can tell him all about the. Uh, the, the invasion of Cardassia through a back channel. He doesn't get much more Cold War than yep. that. So, hmm. um, yeah, so I think they they did that from uh, story-wise from an, a good early. Um, they had Garrick's character quite um, well from that point on. So, Well, we've covered a huge range of topics this evening. Um, I'm sure there's probably heaps more we could talk about. Um, any any other final burning thoughts that you wanted to get out of your notes before we uh, we close this episode off? Um, and and perhaps um, future episodes that could pick up some of the things we haven't been able to discuss today that uh, we can get you back for. Um... Kiss the girl, get the key, and I bet they didn't teach that at the Obsidian Order. <laughs> the Academy, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I've learned a few things, he says. Um, um, playing uh, uh, games of chance, um, and he mentions something else. Um, but we'll put a couple of quotes in here anyway from, from uh, for us to, uh, to do that. Um, but um, look, thanks for joining me for uh, this this fantastic episode, our man Bashir. I do wish they had have done more with this trope um, and played around with it a bit more. 
Um, but uh, obviously there were reasons why they, they didn't. Um, and they certainly found other tropes um, we see in the future um, in the holodeck. We, we don't ever get to see it played out on the holodeck, but we're very aware that um, both Bashir and uh, O'Brien have a vivid historical fantasy yep. life uh, in, in the holodeck. And um, we'll have an opportunity to explore that um, as the series continues. Um, well, look, until next time, I'm uh, Nicholas, Will Nicholas, and this has been the Deep Faith Nine podcast. Um, and, uh, and I've been joined by Kaufman, Michelle Kaufman. We, uh, we're really pleased that you could join us this evening. Don't forget to tune in to our regular um, series of uh, Voyager, which is actually going exceedingly well uh, into season three. Um, and um, and at the moment, I've almost got my team together. And uh, Michelle, you'll be joining us as part of that team uh, to look at Moon Knight coming up um, very shortly. So uh, in, in, in the next couple of weeks, we'll actually commence recording uh, of that. Um, and, uh, and we can anticipate that'll be out probably towards the middle of the year. Um, I hope you've been enjoying Moon Knight um, and have got as much out of it as I have. Um, and um, my, my panel of guests... Um, over the six episodes um, promises to really allow us to unpack a whole range of different things that we've been talking about today uh, tropes social norms um, scripting all of those kind of things around a superheroic um, idea of uh, a dissociative identity disorder um, so look uh, we'll uh, we'll end it there and um, i'll see you next time on deep faith nine Deep Faith Nine is a never odd or even production.